This is Solastalgia. My name is Sue Ann Harding. My name is Colin Shaw. And this podcast is a series of stories about accidental environmental activism in Northern Ireland. I first came across the word solastalgia when I was reading Robert McFarlane's book, Underland. And solastalgia is a word that was coined by an Australian professor, Glenn Albrecht, in 2003. And he defines it as a form of psychic or existential distress caused by environmental change. Today in the studio, we have Doris with us, and we are talking about a very special place, the wetlands that lie between Loch Beg and Loch Ney. So, Doris, it's really nice to have you here in the studio because we did meet prior to this out on site Mm -hmm. in the place that we're talking about today. Yeah, we had a great day there. Just chose that day where it didn't rain, and that made it all the more beautiful. And it was frosty, and there was snow on the mountains. You, can, right. you can see the Sperrin Mountains. Mm. But the landscape itself of Loch Ney and Loch Beg is a very flat area. Loch Ney is the largest freshwater lake in the British Isles, and Loch Beg is really its little sister. It sits to the north. And as you said, Suan, in between, there's a very flat land. It's a low-lying wet grassland, and that's actually a very rare habitat in the world, in Northern Ireland as well. It's classified as a priority habitat. And we were there in March, and we saw big flocks of swans, wild swans, that come every year from Iceland to overwinter in Ireland. Not only in Northern Ireland, but they come and spend their winter in particular sites across the island of Ireland. I learned this shouldn't have, but you told me that there's swans and there's swans. So these aren't your common, ordinary park swans. This is a very special species. Yes. This whole area is designated as a special protected area under EU law. And it is not only for one species, this particular swan, the hooper swan, but for another 20 bird species as well. And the hooper swan is different to our swan that is on the lakes in towns and villages. The wild swan has a yellow and black bill and has a quite a different stance as well. It has a longer neck and it has a head which just looks like a wedge. And local people actually call it the wedge head mm-hmm. for that reason. And whooper, presumably because unlike the mute swan, they, they're noisy. They have a lovely voice. Mm-hmm. They call in flight and also when they're sitting on the land. And they spend a lot of time on land, actually. Only at night do the hooper swans go onto the lake for safety, to be safe from predators. Mm-hmm. And during the day, they spend, they spend their hours grazing on these wet, low-lying grasslands Mm -hmm. that are the special feature, sometimes known as the tomb complex because it's near the small town of Tomb, Tomb Bridge, and other people call it the Crake. We noticed we were looking down from Ockham Hill, is that...? It's just a little ridge, really, but it's an important geographic feature to separate these low-lying grasslands from a busy industrial estate that was built around the year 2000. There's also the existing A6, that is the connecting road between Belfast and the northwest. And so if you stand on that little ridge, you have the road and all that industrial development behind you. And in front of you, you just have the flat expanse of Loch Beg and really big margins of wetlands that flood during the winter. The water levels can go up and down quite dramatically. The ignoramus in me would sort of say, well, those fields are flooded. 
So why, why haven't over the generations the farmers managed to, to drain it? Well, that does make it so special that it is nay impossible to drain that land. And the farmers have learned how to work with that fact that for certain times of the year, the land is flooded. In a way, it was a conservationist dream that all these parts really beautifully fitted together. The farmers were very proud of their land and they welcomed the swans every winter. They were not too happy when the environment agency told them, for example, you can't build a cattle shed there because this land is too special. You will cause disturbance to these overwintering birds. And the farmers accepted that. There was one farmer called Joe who spoke about that at the public inquiry into the road in 2007. And so it's recorded and it's minuted that the environment agency knew this was very special land and the farmers accepted it, that they could not carry out certain activities, which maybe they would have liked to, but they respected that. So it was like a giant nature reserve that was managed by the farmers and eight Farmers actually gave affidavits in the court proceedings to say, we like the swans, we want to manage the land for the swans, and what is being proposed will not help the swans. Mm. And it's a very beautiful and gentle landscape. It's flooded and mossy and marshy and the water levels moving up and down. And I remember as we stood there and looked north to Lockbag and Church Island and the Spire, it's a beautiful landscape and a gentle landscape. Now, we're standing here at Ockram Hill, looking on a beautiful wintry day out towards Loch Bay, which is like the little sister to Loch Ney, the biggest freshwater lake in the UK, Loch Ney. And Loch Bay was really not visible to most people because it was very secluded in its location. And one of the things that when they built the new road, the A6, which is a totally offline development, doesn't follow the old A6 route, they said it will open up new vistas to the passing motorist and it has delivered on that. Unfortunately, it has also dissected the single most important feeding ground for visiting and wintering hooper swans, a species that comes every year to Northern Ireland from Iceland. And in fact, they spend more time of their lives in Northern Ireland than in Iceland, but they go back to Iceland to breed. We're actually here at a triangulation yes. point. Yes. This is great because we have got photographs taken from this as a non-moving object mm. and we produced postcards in the past to write to local politicians to tell them what a special place they have and how important it is that they look after that place. Unfortunately that has been ignored and a brand new dual carriageway has been built here with several overbridges, with a lay-by as well. And the thinking that was proposed in the environmental assessments was that swans don't mind moving traffic. They mind people walking or cycling, but they don't mind moving traffic. That doesn't disturb them. But there's a couple of flaws with that, big flaws. I have been doing counts, but because post-construction there was an obligation to survey the swans for three years. This is actually the final winter. 22-23 is the final winter that these surveys are taking place and so we have built up a picture of how the swans have actually been pushed out of this area due to this construction of the road. We really argued in court that that was bound to happen because we have a precedent in Scotland 
where a Rolls Royce factory was built on similarly flat wet grassland and wet grassland is something very special. It doesn't exist that much. It's ideal for development. Flat land is always great for development. So over in Scotland outside Glasgow this Rolls Royce factory was being built and the Scottish Ornithologist Trust which is a very reputable large organization a bit similar to the RSBB said no this can't work we don't think it will work then mitigation was proposed and they said okay let's try it they have said it was a disaster the swans have abandoned this area called Inchannon and yet the same mm. mitigation and the same proposal was rolled out again when it came to the development of this road the A6 sometimes when we've discussed this with lay people they would say something like well can't the swans just go somewhere else Sure. They've got wings, when they just fly away and make a home somewhere else. Yeah, birds have wings. <laughs> it's a fallacy that all birds can just go somewhere else. There are a lot of specialists in the bird world, and these birds, these hooper swans, are large birds. They need landing places. They literally need a bit of a runway to come in. They want to be close to their nighttime roosts they actually go overnight they go onto a wetland they go onto a lake and it's during the day that they need to have easy access to these flat green fields and we have seen it over and over again that birds can of course accommodate certain changes but there comes a point a critical point where enough is enough and this point had been reached for this site because there had been a bypass built around tomb I think there was absolutely no argument that Toome was a very difficult town to navigate through for commuter traffic, busy commuter traffic between Belfast and Derry. And so the Toome bypass was built. It was finished in 2003. And as soon as the Toome bypass was finished, the road engineers came up with this new project to build a new dual carriageway through this wetland. Now, this site, the tomb complex, as it is known, the tomb complex for these wintering hooper swans is outside a red line that demarcates the special protection area. However, there's more to a special protection area, and particularly these swans, they need to be functionally linked. They don't just need the water, like our resident swan, the mute swan that you see on park lakes, they're quite happy to be mostly on water, but these hooper swans really need to spend all day on land eating grass. And the amazing thing here in this site at Tomb was that the farmers were so sympathetic to these animals. Mm -hmm. It really was a dream constellation. The land was here, it was being farmed, the farmers were the custodians of this landscape. They accommodated the swans. And, I mean, this is written down in transcripts in the public inquiry in 2007. The farmers gave evidence along those lines. And they said, we don't want this road going through this land because this is where the swans are, this is where we do our farming, and we can't understand it. We have been told we can't even build a cattle shed there. Why can there suddenly be a dual carriageway going through those fields? So we're standing here on top of the hill and we've driven up through the back track, up through some houses that are nestled here on the hill. But we're standing here on a beautiful winter's sunny day. There has been snow overnight. So the row of hills across this little shallow valley almost, isn't it, are covered in snow. And it's beautiful and green. I think that's really interesting to hear that swans 
eat grass. I don't think I thought about that. And at the bottom of the hill runs this dual carriageway and we can hear the traffic. And then on the other side are these fields and in the distance is Loch Beg, right? That is Loch Beg, yes. It's basically a broadening of the river ban. Which we can see here to the right, is that correct? Yes. This darker blue. Yes, so your observation of it's almost like a valley is very accurate because it's, it is a river valley that we're looking at in some sense. And it's also a flyway. It ends at Coleraine on the north coast and birds, migrating birds like black-tailed godwits, like golden plover who come from Iceland to winter here in Ireland because it stays normally mild. You normally don't see the snow mm. that we see today on the on the hills. Yeah. They follow that flyway. And Loch Beg is a very shallow lake. And it's more like, as I say, a big widening of a river. It has very fluctuating water levels as well. It has a lot of rough, wet grassland. All the brown areas that you see, that is almost like common land in some sense that has become available. So marshy and tussocky, I suppose. You said you know this area well because in your past life you worked doing surveys. So this is actually the area where you would have walked. You know what it's like to tramp through marshy, wet ground is that correct yes i was a survey worker for the rsbb i did breeding wader surveys for them in the mid 1980s so we were trying to establish a baseline of what habitat what population of birds this habitat could support and it was about 204 pairs of breeding waders that we catalogued at here at loch Beg. that's a lot considering that curlier is now almost on the extinct list in fact, the hill we're standing on, Ockram Hill, the RSBB insisted in 2014-15 that the curlews would be counted here as well. They suspected this was the last site for breeding curlews, this green field that we're looking at now, leading down to the dual carriageway to the A6. And I enjoyed that work. It was hard. I couldn't do it now. I have a mobility impairment now. But back then, nearly 40 years ago, I enjoyed putting on my wellies first thing in the morning. And I know I met so many farmers as well doing that work. And it was just... I I came from Germany and I thought, this is unbelievable. Northern Ireland is like paradise. I was a young person then. I was about 20 I had worked in, in Germany in conservation. I was digging ponds for frogs and newts. But I had never seen wetlands like this, with this kind of population of birds like the snipe, which has a wonderful display flight. It goes up into the air and then it has two side feathers that it sort of spreads out. And it's not a song it makes, but it uses these tail feathers to make a sound. The Germans call it the sky goat because it sounds a bit like a goat wow. when it makes that display. So here they were everywhere. They were red shank on fence posts and they have a different call, they have a sort of a whistle. And it really was like paradise. And I'm so, so, it hurts my heart to see that this paradise here at Lochbeg has been literally paved over. What has been the impact in terms of numbers and species since you first came here in the 80s? Yeah, a huge decline. Nature is in crisis. Just 
in February this year, the Northern Ireland Environment Agency has updated its list of species that are in difficulty in Northern Ireland. It has increased by another 200 species and there's hardly a breeding wader left on this site. What to say to that? It's awful, isn't it? Because as we stand here on this green hill and we look over to that field that you said was one of the favourite fields of the Hooper swans, it's completely empty of swans. We can see some birds far in the distance on the actual lock. And I'm assuming they're some kind of swan because they're large, but it's almost like a little haven there. God bless your eyes, I can't see a thing. <laughs> can you? Well, I can. I've just looked with the binoculars. And of course, there are, there are mute swans here as well. There's a lot of waterfowl, ducks like mallard, widgeon would be there on the open water. But overall, the whole SPA is large. It's Loch Beg and it's also the larger Loch Ney. Mm. And that's about 41,000 hectares of water. And that sounds so marvellous. Sure, there's a lot of protected area. But the problem is that even on Loch Ney, where we have more open water, over the last decade, 100,000 waterfowl have been lost. They're gone. We don't understand quite where they are, what has happened to them. It's just a rapid decline and disappearance of everything. And it has something to do with that Europe long discovered or has promoted the idea that these sites, these protected sites, they have to be bigger, better, there have to be more of them and they have to be more connected with each other. And with the Hooper swans, it doesn't matter that there's 40,001 hectares. They need land that is very particular and that is the land that is so much under threat because it is flat and is open for development. It's almost like it is a land grab because you see all these overbridges now. Mm. Farmers always access these fields, of course, by maybe driving through a neighbor's field. But there's a lot more disturbance now. That is technically where the red line is, but there is plenty of case law now that shows that these red lines have been drawn very tightly. Uh, and traditionally so in the UK, they've been drawn extremely tightly. So like the and absolute minimum. Yes, yeah. and it totally ignored the needs of the species for which the site was actually designated. In mm. this case, golden plover and hooper swan. The mm. golden plover would also roost on those green fields. Mm. You know, we shouldn't get hung up about the red line. Mm. Because it is the whole functionality of a site has to be considered and plenty of case law has now shown that that is the case and the Environment Agency said exactly the same in its advice to the Department for Infrastructure, only that was ignored, it was buried. Have they found dead swans? I mean, have there been casualties? Yes. Because of the traffic? The traffic, but more the power lines. The other site where we'll go next and have a look because the swans have basically moved to this other area. Okay, an unintended There's consequence. Power, power lines, and there have been, uh, in 2019, there were about 16 dead hooper swans were found. Mm. They're so big and bulky, and when mm. they fly, it's not easy for them to change direction mm. quickly. So, But you can see here, there are no power lines. There never were power lines. They loved this area. Mm. It was adjacent to the area where they like to be at night, They don't want to expend much energy. They want to go nice and plump Mm -hmm. to make that long journey, 1,000 kilometers non-stop flight back to Iceland. So they need a lot of energy built up and they want to be in peak condition to then start nesting Mm. and raise young. Mm. I learned that the technical term for geese and birds doing that is called loafing. 
They loaf, and I absolutely love the idea that these things are like professional loafers. They're just sitting there doing nothing for a very specific reason, and disturbances and everything can really upset that yes. balance because they're actually storing energy and doing as little as possible to stay alive, basically. Yes, they do have a holiday when they come to Northern Ireland, really, but it's not a great welcome at the moment mm. with this road now. And they do socialise then when they're together here in the winter because when they're in Iceland they are very isolated there's just one pair on a little lake and they guard it fiercely so when they're on their nesting grounds in Iceland they want to be by themselves but here they catch up with each other Mm. and they really are dynasties involved it's like swallows who like to come back to the same place again and again there's a clan structure within the Hooper Swan family I've noticed that okay I'm going to be perfectly honest this doesn't really speak to me it's not a Swiss Valley it's lowlands. So could you pick out three or four features that really are maybe bland to us, but are important to you? Well, one of the features is Church Island, which is one of the wooded islands that you can see there. And you can just see about a church spire oh, on yes. it. That was actually a pilgrimage site in the past. The spire is just a spire. It's a bit of a folly that was built there. A peregrine has nested on that spire. And on the walk up to Church Island, you walk through these wetlands. They're called dubs here as well. And they can be covered with orchids. Mm. Particularly one very special orchid is Irish Lady's Tressor's Orchid. It's a small white orchid which has a sort of twisted flower spike. So yes, the landscape looks a little bit flat and is not dramatic like the north coast. But it is a gentle landscape. It has its own ecosystem. It all interdepends with each other. So if extra nutrients, for example, are brought into it, the very sensitive orchids say, thank you very much, but I don't like it here anymore. Mm. And they literally just go away. So you wanted features. Well, it is flat. It is expansive. Mm. It is not fragmented. Mm. And that is actually quite rare, particularly in Northern Ireland, where we have a historic settlement pattern of a lot of fragmentation, lots of tracks, lots of individual houses in the countryside. In the Republic of Ireland, there's more of these connected places, like in Wexford, Tecumshan Lake, for example, Ladies Island Lake and Tecumshan Wetland. They would have that wilderness feel. That's Mm. how I would describe it looking here. There's a little place of wilderness, wet, wild and wonderful. That's Mm. what it looks like to me. So, what are we looking at? using our car as a mobile hide and we're looking at a a field which has wet puddles in it that's what the swans really like some water in the fields waterlogged fields and there are about 120 hooper swans they uh, are waddling along they have spotted us but they have calmed down again now some of them are sitting down again Uh, there was a bit of commotion when we first stopped the car to check out Is it safe for them to stay? Do they have to spend the energy and fly off? But they are settled and they have black and yellow bills. That's really the distinguishing feature to the local swan on the park lakes. And they have a very tall neck. They're very elegant birds. Mm -hmm. And some of them are flapping their wings. What's that for? Are they doing a bit of gym? Getting Mm -hmm. ready for their return journey? Well, yeah, they always try and get their feathers in the right place. And Mm -hmm. I think part of that wing flapping is sometimes to say hello to the neighbor. And sometimes it just makes all the feathers fall back neatly where they should be, each feather Mm -hmm. in its place. Mm -hmm. And again, so to the untrained eye, 
they're not really doing anything very interesting. But what can you see? Some are sleeping. Some are sleeping, some are feeding, so they have their necks bent and they're literally taking billfuls of grass and then when they get thirsty they waddle over to the puddle and take a big drink and it's just a very peaceful, leisurely, loafing existence that they have here. And you say they go back as pairs and nest in Iceland, so can you observe couple you said they're even dynasties so they're sort of family groups you can often see family groups that would be typically two adults and three juveniles the juveniles are the birds with the slightly muddy looking plumage and you will see when they walk across a field from one end to the other they will always stick together we can see about three four or five together now would that possibly be a, a family group yeah yeah, I'm very sure I need mm. to get the binoculars on them. But yes, there was a time when they had ring tags on them, sometimes even around their neck. They were ringed in Iceland to identify some of their movements. And there's also a bird called T6, and that reminds me. I must find out what happened to a bird called T6 that had telemetry mm. attached to it. So it had a very modern GPS signal-emitting transmitter attached to it. They're real poets, these scientists, aren't they? <laughs> but they... T6. T6. <laughs> they, they march in a rather beautiful way. Look how they lift their mm. feet and stride along. You always sort of, Sometimes, you know, the way cattle, like, you see them, they just sort of go, and, well, I'll go over there for a while. <laughs> you know, but you wonder why they sort of go, I'll go over there for a bit. Mm. Stretch the legs. Mm. But now, if that... The up. grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> but it got very dry there. It rain, hasn't rained for a few weeks. Mm. If it gets dry, what happens? Do they need open water? Or do they have the lake, I suppose? They have the Loch Beg nearby, and then there's also a smaller lake called McGrogan's Hole. That's where the elk was found. Okay. The antlers of this prehistoric elk. And these fields are always waterlocked. Mm. There's some drainage ditches, but mm -hmm. just to stop overflowing, because, for example, in 2017, the fields we're looking at now were totally underwater. Mm -hmm. The water level of Loch Beck fluctuates quite a lot. I mean, it's like a giant sponge. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just soak up extra rainwater, but it also soaks up CO2 emissions, for example. So what we're looking at is a giant sponge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They will be here till the middle of March, really by early April, they will have disappeared mm -hmm. and returned back to Iceland. To sunny Iceland. Well, they go there and disperse there. There mm -hmm. won't be in a flock in Iceland anymore. They travel en masse, but then they disperse to isolated hilly lakes. And here it's like a gathering, mm -hmm. a social time, a holiday time, actually. And mm -hmm. they spend more time in Ireland than they do actually in their native Iceland where they're born. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a lot of hazards for them. We talk about the power cables here mm. or they have been known to uh, land on on roads yes, I've heard which that. they mistake mm, to be wet, wet mm. a lake and mm. then they mm. not uh, not a suitable landing space for them. Mm. Yes. If oh look look there's long tailed tits. Oh, so they are Just here on the right. The cotton the bud ones. Yeah, I love them. Mm. Can you see them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, Ireland is, an, all Ireland is a very important place for these overwintering hooper swans from Iceland. 
and around Loch Ney and Loch Beg there are about 18 sites and so there are other sites mm. where these different clans go to and they are all unprotected and that makes it all the more imperative that really the, the biggest site mm. that there was mm. should have been not fragmented through the construction of the A6. I think it's extraordinary that we are sitting in this car on a driveway of a very kind farmer looking at these hooper swans in the field and they are of international significance mm. and we're just here because we know about that and we've just we were told and we were told about mm. that yeah so so it's extraordinary it's of international significance and there's nothing here to indicate that and here we are just in the car on this little road looking at them i think it's mm. marvelous but also i wish more people well, i don't know what i wish more people knew about it it's that whole thing about being able to see things right mm -hmm. see what normally you don't see and you just pass by Seamus Heaney of course was somebody who really growing up there spent a lot of time there and he connected very deeply with it and wrote about his experience as well looking at tadpoles and frog spawn in the area and that seeping landscape as he describes it this blurring almost off boundaries as well because sometimes the land is dry enough sometimes it's really flooded and it has special plants for example as well that can tolerate that mm -hmm. there's a beautiful little orchid a white orchid called irish ladies tresses just like a lady's plaited hair it's named after that in august you can see a thousand spikes of that orchid in that area around the tomb complex wow and he does write very beautifully about the landscape and I was reading also what he wrote in Preoccupations in his book of prose about the importance of this particular landscape of his childhood that really imbued in him a sense of well maybe the poet's contemplation right like being so close to a landscape and and knowing it so well and yeah he wrote about the elk Bogland is also very important to him and this idea that we don't have prairies, right? That's one of his poems. Mm -hmm. But instead we have bogland and we have marshy, quiet countryside. And he does write very beautifully about it and it really does seep through. And I was lucky that in the 80s when I came over from Germany to live in Northern Ireland, I did bird surveys and I walked very early in the mornings when there was still mist on the landscape, put on my welly boots and walked through a lot of these wet fields to survey for wading birds, nesting wading birds, that's birds like the curlew, the lapwing, the red shank, the snipe, for example. And they need, again, like these wonderful little orchids, they need a very special balance in the landscape. And I think Heaney connected with that. And suddenly, 30 years later, I found myself connected to one of his poems, which starts with the day, Someday I shall go and see the Tolland Man. Someday I shall go to Aarhus and see the Tolland Man. Mm. And that's about a person who was found in a bog in Denmark, near the city of Aarhus, which is on Jutland in Denmark. And it was a person who lived 400 years before Christ, so in the Iron Age, 
and he was beautifully preserved. And that's what Seamus Heaney writes about in that poem, how he connects to that person and wonders about that person in the past. And for me, suddenly that took on new relevance in 2016 because there was this plan for a new road offline in a big arch through this wetland rather than staying online or going through an old industrial estate, which uh, Seamus Heaney himself spoke out about, that he would prefer that route. But the route that was chosen was going through the wetland. We thought about what do we do now? We had worked for 10 years in many sort of creative ways to run a campaign. We had garden feats. We spoke to local biodiversity officers. We did wetland walks for the public to try and connect people to this place to pass on that connection, really, that I experienced when I walked through it with my wellies on. And, and knowing, having come from Germany, that this is very special. In Germany at that time, we had lost most of those places to development. Lost to roads, and we, we lost it to intensification of farming where it was possible. The first year I came to Northern Ireland, I actually worked in County Fermanagh. That was in '85. And I just stood there and I thought, this is unbelievable. There's a wooden fence post and there's a red shank whistling from the top of this fence post. And I just realized these places in Northern Ireland are special. They have maybe been forgotten. Maybe that's why they still exist. And even then, I mean, the reason I came over and to do these surveys was that Department for Agriculture was giving out grants to get these wetlands in Fermanagh drained. Sometimes it can be very easy to drain a wetland. In the case of Lochbeg, it's not so easy. But in Fermanagh, that was happening at a rapid pace. The Environment Agency wanted to get a baseline of how many pairs of waders are, are in these wetlands with a view of actually paying compensation to farmers to stay with the traditional methods, not to drain. But there was a conflict between the two departments. In nature conservation, or generally, I think we have learned that these places need to be as big as possible, as well connected as possible, more of them. And that's the sort of principle that is at stake here with this road, the A6, particularly around Lochney, that it fragments. It diminishes. We all know the term death by a thousand cuts. It happens invariably. But even James Heaney said, all roads desecrate, some more than others. Mm. And this section of the A6, which is only four kilometers long, there was already a compromise, if you like, in 2003 with the actual bypass around Tomb Bridge, because that is a sort of a squeeze point where the river ban connects Loch Ney and Loch Beg, there were very few other alternative routes that could have been considered. So now there's a new bridge over the ban. If you go over there, over the lovely blue bridge, often in the winter people see the swans actually sitting in the fields to the left and to the right. So there's something to be said that animals do get used to certain things, but if they run out of a landing place, that's it. They're, they're finished. While they have wings, and swans have beautiful large wings, it's a fallacy to think they can just go somewhere else. Because, as I said, they do need specific situations to be happy. They can't just go somewhere else. And we see that we are in a time of biodiversity crisis. The, the plunging numbers of so many birds, for example, is frightening. 80% of skylarks 
lost. Northern Ireland has a particularly bad record. I mean, there's a, a study of 244 countries and Northern Ireland is right at the bottom, more or less, when it comes to how rich the biodiversity is and how much has been lost. So can we go back to the 80s? I'm really interested. I guess I was at East in Ireland at the time. And if I, I thought in the 80s, it was a time of economic depression. People were leaving the country in their droves. I left in 87 and didn't come back for 15 years. But you turned up. <laughs> I turned up on the Belfast Telegraph, heard about me, and they asked me to give them a little story. And I remember the article. We did the interview at Kinnegar Beach outside Hollywood. And the headline was, Ori says, don't spoil your beautiful country. Mm-hmm. And wow. I'm afraid that there was something happening at the time while people, I think, were leaving. There was also a, a drive to exploit uh, I think it is an exploitation when you take away from nature and don't give it any second thought. I think the A6 really almost strikes me as a land grab because it's not only a road, but there's lots of new little roads that have opened up. I think we'll see a lot of development along that section. Mm-hmm. It's not going to stop with just a road. There's too many roundabouts, which is good. People need to reach roads. But it leads to more and more development. And as I say, that was totally undeveloped land and farmers were told not to develop it. Mm-hmm. And so where, where, how, how can that be? What, what economic drive did trump the environmental concerns of the Environment Agency? I was accidental in that in, in as much that I thought, well, I will go to the Environment Agency. You know, I see them as the good guys. Mm-hmm. I'll ask them, can I see their files? Because they have been recording these hooper swans and other birds as part of this SPA designation. I will ask them, can I see the files? So when did you do this? When did you start that getting sort of forensic? That was beginning of 2017. Okay. So that after was, the public inquiry and everything. So, Yeah, the public inquiry had been a long time ago yeah, in 2007. Two, yes. 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 Uh, so you were aware of this campaign and aware of the intention to build the road but something made you in 2017 go, I will go and ask the environment. Well, you were behind the campaign. Okay, so let's say, let's maybe talk about the road yeah. as a project. That's and a great yes, idea. There, was, uh, there was a campaign all along. People were aware of these project plans and they spoke out about it. And the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust at the time, for example, also came, turned up at the public inquiry in 2007 and said, no. This is, you know, you're touching an area that is of international importance and there are alternative routes. And really the law says you must then choose an alternative route. What was the law? The law is called the Habitats Directive. So that was EU law? That was EU law, yes. So how did you get involved in the 2007 inquiry? In the 2007 inquiry, I was not physically present What I can read, because there's a transcript of it, I can see that all the people who turned up were really confused because they thought they were going to talk about all the routes. And yet suddenly the inquiry was really just telling them, no, there's one route and that's it. Tell us what you think of it, but there's no other routes to choose from. It had suddenly narrowed. The Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust was there. 
uh, as I said, stated its position that they felt that it was a breaking law, the European Habitats Directive, impacting on a special protected area the way it would do. And to everybody's surprise, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds said, we're okay with that. We think there are measures in place Mm. that will ensure that there will be no significant impact on the bird population. But if it's against the law, how how somebody's opinion wouldn't change the law? How, how, they, how do they allow themselves? How are they allowed to build it anyway? Can they set it aside? They can offer mitigation. Oh, the and they can, uh, I think the RSBB accepted that some certain things would be hardwired. They talked about field amalgamation, for example. And they saw the RSBB it's written down in that transcript, they saw it as strategic buy-in. So what, what would that mean, strategic buy-in? To be able to maybe open up the bird-watching potential and have a hide. There's talk of a tasteful viewing facility, for example. So you're saying that they strategically decided to go with the authorities in the hopes that by not opposing it, they might be able to get... Crumbs, little crumbs that fall from the table. I think they took the eye of the ball Mm. uh, when they did that. I know from court proceedings in 2017 that the department shortly after dropped all those promises. Because they were not sold out and Mm -hmm. then you don't get anything (laughs) anyway. It's difficult because you have a powerful voice as an environmental NGO, but I suppose you have other concerns Mm. that you also need to juggle. Mm. Um, Yeah, so it was surprising that in the end, when this point appeared with the minister making a decision, that was the time in August 2016 that we realised, well, now they're not just talking about it. Now they have made a decision. And you will have heard about the term judicial review. So when a minister makes a decision, there's a period of six weeks where you can actually say, I don't think that's correct and I want to challenge that decision. It starts with something called a pre-application protocol letter. Before you even make an application to judicial review, you write to the concerned department and outline your position, why you feel this is going to have a significant negative impact on protected wetland. Then they have to write back to you and they said, we've done all the ecological checks and the minister has confirmed that. And we were not happy with that answer that we got. When I say we, that is me and my husband, Chris Murphy. And we decided to take a step into the unknown and start a judicial review. That was not an easy decision because that's a huge thing. I mean, we're both greenhorns (laughs) and the legal profession. It's scarily expensive, of course. And... What we did know so that we could potentially take this action because it concerned an environmental matter under the treaty called the Aarhus Convention. The UK signed that in 1998. It became law in the UK in 2007, I think it was. And it allows the applicant for judicial review to ask for a cost protection order so that the liability basically is limited at about £5,000 plus VAT. And that emboldened us, I have to say, that made us think, well, we should really do that. Now, the next 
big expense in a legal proceeding is, of course, having solicitors. And if you go to court, you have to have a barrister normally. But it is possible to appear as a litigant in person where you speak for yourself. To represent yourself. To represent yourself. Well, of course, we always wanted to represent the wetland. Mm. We wanted to give the swans a voice. They can't come to court. Mm. And the Aarhus Convention recognises that. So that is the, the mechanism that we used to start judicial review proceeding. And you have to go through lots and lots of other processes. For example, you have a, a leave hearing at first and you might fall at that hurdle. The judge might say, no, there's not enough substance mm. here. Go away again. <laughs> However, the leave judge did say, hold on, I don't think all the ecological checks have been done here. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like in a checkbook, the old-fashioned checkbook. Before something can proceed of that magnitude, with that impact, really everything should be in place. So you should have your date on the check, you should have your amount of money on the check, you have to have your account number mm-hmm. and you have to have a signature. Mm-hmm. And essentially what the minister at the time did, Chris Hazard, who happens to be my local MP as well, he made the signature on the cheque. And yet throughout the proceedings then, throughout the judicial review, the Department for Infrastructure took the attitude that he didn't sign the cheque, that it didn't exist. So they were actually becoming more aware that they were contradicting themselves. I'm not sure I follow. So Minister Hazard yes. signed off on the project, basically. Yes. He made a decision. He made a decision. That it would go ahead. Mm -hmm. That it would go ahead, that there would be vesting orders and that he checked on the appropriate assessment. That is the document for the ecological checks that needs to be Mm -hmm. sealed and signed. Mm -hmm. And I met Minister Hazard, well, he's an MP now, of course, last month in a constituency office meeting. And he says, I clearly remember doing that. I clearly remember signing the cover sheet. So it doesn't make sense. No. Yeah, I'm not surprised you frown here <laughs> and look a bit puzzled. Very puzzled. We are all puzzled as well. When you say the GFI acted as if he hadn't signed the cheque, could you explain that a little bit more? Ah, yes, because they said in court proceedings that that particular part of the signing of the cheque was actually done in 2008 and that now a totally different situation existed. And that cannot be true under the Habitats Directive because the Habitats Directive, there's a very classic case called the Vadensee Mm -hmm. decision where there's a shelf life for Mm -hmm. Habitats appropriate assessment decision. Unlike an environmental impact assessment, which is much more fluffy in some sense and doesn't have a shelf life, the Habitats Directive has a shelf life, this appropriate assessment decision. And that is pretty much accepted to be one year. And after that, scientific data can change, scientific knowledge can change. So you need to do another one? So you need to update it. So it needs to be up to date. Mm. And therefore, the argument in court that it all goes back to 2008 really doesn't stand. I think you can't really defend the indefensible unless you're willing to not really look at the evidence. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think the whole judicial review was designed in the end to to destroy the authority of the Habitats Directive Mm -hmm. and to undermine its objectives. And because that happens very often, we are in such a bad state when it comes to our 
nature, and we are nature. Mm-hmm. We're only hurting ourselves when we don't pay attention to this. There's not them and us, us mm-hmm. and nature. We mm-hmm. are one. Mm. At what point do you feel like you got well, tangled up in this? I think I was involved from 86 when I yeah, wow. walked those fields and got to know the farmers and explored those wet ditches. And of course, I followed the development of the tomb bypass. And Which was I, in 2003? Yeah, that was pretty much finished then. Yeah, And that, as I say, took quite a large area away from traditional Hooperswan grazing fields. And then it just seemed to be relentless. And then another industrial park was built. And I just realized, hold on, you know, you're taking more and more of that land away, a land that cannot be replaced, basically. Mm. And there's also a principle called the precautionary principle that if you're not sure, you shouldn't do it. First, do no harm, essentially. And the reason why I'm so invested in this, I think the Lochbeg Judicial Review really is a landmark. Mm. Now that we're in a post-Brexit situation, it is a landmark case because it has to be exposed how it undermined the current legislation as it was then and surprisingly actually still is because a lot of people in government don't want you to know Mm. but in a legal situation when it comes to environmental laws we are still in the same situation as we were before Brexit. Mm. Absolutely yes. Retained EU law. Retained EU EU law. Mm -hmm. So if you allow that to be misinterpreted in this case Mm. Then, of course, there's a lot of case law. A lot of legal proceedings are based on case law. Mm. Then that's a very critical case S- sets law. Sets a precedent yeah, sets for a later precedent. cases to misinterpret the yeah. Habitats Directive. As I'm listening to you, a German author is coming to mind, <laughs> Kafka, Kafkaesque. You know, this idea of this, this relentless bureaucracy where the individual is just sort of churned up. And, and yeah, I think people listening now are already swamped mm-hmm. with this this mechanism, which I imagine nobody's comfortable with, you know, even if you're an expert. So are you saying that the system, I suppose we can't say rigged, but the system was so designed that it came up with what should have been an illegal decision and that road, if they'd obeyed the law, should never have been built? It shouldn't have been built on that route, hmm. But it was always not about the road, it was about the route where that new dual carriageway would basically be built. Coming back to Kafka, yes, you do feel sometimes, am I right? Am I so wrong? What do I not understand here? You know, am I being gaslighted? What's going on? Is this misinformation? And you have to just keep asking questions. There's lots of things I could say about, for example, that there was always an agreement not to build, for example, in the construction phase of the road during the winter when the swans would be there. So they always had agreed that they would not build for six months of the year. However, it appears they didn't have intention to really stick to that. (laughs) You know, you can write a lot on paper. Paper Mm. is very patient. And then when the action happens, it's all forgotten. And it's all done. You can't undo the road or you can't undo them working in the winter. This says something on paper, but then when they actually just go ahead and do it and you're powerless in the face of the action on the ground, the wetlands being churned up. These projects have something called construction and environmental management reports. 
And on another section of the A6, there's also a section that hasn't opened yet as of today between Drummerhoe outside Derry and Dungiven. It's called the A6DD and the contractor has been found or is now in court for having repeatedly caused water pollution to the River Fohan, which is also a designated site, a special area of conservation because it's a river that carries salmon. I'm sure the construction environmental management plan looked like, you know, everything is safe. Mm. We know this is a salmonid river. Mm. We will do these mm. bungs. We will do this. We will mm. we'll do that. And yet there's a consistent litany mm. of water pollution incidents that have been caused by that section of the A6. The people listening who are aware of the road, I suppose the question is, you put all your efforts into not preventing the road, but having it done in an environmentally sensitive way that minimizes the damage. That didn't happen. So what what are the forces? Why are these campaigns often completely overwhelmed, overpowered by well-resourced, not just the fact that the obviously the GFI have a huge budget, but it's, I suppose, like a mindset or people would call it pro-development or pro-road or pro-car. But that mindset, isn't that kind of like the real enemy, the real opposing force? Mm. Yeah, I think you put your finger there on an important point. Earlier on, you mentioned the word lawful. And it is interesting that the Court of Appeal, because from the High Court, we went on to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal basically found this development, this project to be valid. Now, they seem to shy away from the word lawful. And I think the word valid is is a lot more open to these sort of elements that you've just brought in, the mindset. Whereas really, when you're in court, you want to have the law applied. As it is in court today, today's law should be applied. Interestingly, in the period between when we were with the judicial review in the High Court and on to then to the Court of Appeal, there was a law change in the roads order, which governs a lot of road building. And it is very complicated. I apologize to people because it is, uh, you know, in the end, it is very simple. The road should not be going through such a special wetland. So the law change basically gave the Department for Infrastructure even more power. This road was never subject to planning law. There are certain roads, designated trunk roads, where you don't have to go through a planning process. But to come back to the powers of the Department for Infrastructure, they are a very powerful department and they have a lot of money to spend. And they, in the case of the A6, basically had the privilege of being the promoter, the developer and also the decision maker. So all rolled up in one. There was no checks and balances. And when I went into the environment agency offices to prepare some paperwork for the court proceeding starting, I nearly fell off my chair because <laughs> there was a five-year study that showed that these fields in their own right, never mind Lochney and Lochbeck, but these fields in their own right should be declared as a special protection area. That's how important they are. And this was a five-year study from 2005 to 2010 so it was happening while the public inquiry was happening as well. And that just then was put on a shelf and never looked at again. 
It's extraordinary. When I was reading through all the documents about your campaign, there's lots of beautiful little videos available online and people spoke very eloquently and very strongly about the whole thing again and again and again. There is a copy of a fax from Seamus Heaney. I realize now what that is, right? It's Seamus Heaney faxing through sections of his book where he writes about this area and his handwriting. It's it's overwhelming. The case not to build is overwhelming from so many different areas. And it just seems, yes, Kafkaesque and impossible that with that strength of feeling, the scientific evidence, the environmental evidence. An alternative road. An alternative road. I was very impressed by the Friends of the Earth document that they put out in conjunction with you about all the things that you are for. Lockerbeg for life. Mm -hmm. We are for a transport route that connects these places. We are for tourism development in the area. We are for this. We are for this. So powerful, so positive, and yet... It happened. So why did it happen? Okay, let's go back. So is it culture? Is it a culture within a department or even within the society that doesn't give value to these perhaps hidden or, you know, it's not a panda reserve. It's not something that people would have known about. It's not the giant's causeway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in my wildest dreams, it's almost like a mafia. It's about extractive industries that extract sand and gravel. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's in my wildest dreams. I haven't got any proof for that. But you sometimes have to wonder in those cases, where does the money go? Yeah, so I've learned just recently from you, Dor, that the whole scheme itself is £420 million. Well, I think it's more than that. More I than think that. the 420 is a to... Done given. Wow. So it's just mind boggling money when you think about how many minutes that will actually shave off the journey. An important factor is always road safety, but there are probably smarter engineering solutions to achieve the road safety than just spending so much money. I also learned from you, Colin, that Department for Infrastructure has just scrapped the cycling proficiency program they used to run at schools. I think it was £40,000 a year. It was rather satisfactorily and with a kind of a strange symmetry. £42,000 a year, which is 10,000 times less than 0.1% of that section of Jumbo. So not enough money for that. Not enough money for cycling proficiency. And just to also clarify about this road is it like four miles the section we that, that we're talking about yeah. yeah and that was already basically built as a new section when the tomb bypass was being built so it was a very wide straight section of the road between tomb and the river moyola that is the section that we were concerned about and as the environmental statement at the time said you know the new route to the north of Ockram Hill, will open up beautiful new views. Well, that is correct. Nobody really could see Lochbeg before. It was sheltered. It was private. You had to go out of your way to see it. And now you whiz past and you have a quick look mm -hmm. onto a lake and that's it. You can't see the orchids that way. You can't engage 
with the landscape by just whizzing past it. So that's not a good argument for spending that much money just to have it's a the, one of the most a, perverse a split things you could ever imagine saying, of a new Grace. vista. Yeah, and the Hooper Swans. When we were standing on Ockram Hill and you were showing us the field where they used to mm-hmm. settle and graze, and loaf, and loaf are no longer there because that's right up next to the road that's opening up the vista to mm-hmm. see the hooper swans, but they're not there. Yeah, and the strange thing, Suan, is as well, this is all so well documented. So many surveys are happening right to this day. For example, the Department for Infrastructure did commit to every winter count the swans three years post-construction. So this is now the last winter that they're doing that. We're going to analyse their counts, and we are going to try and visualize it. And if anybody's out there and listening to this and has those skills, which neither my husband nor I have, to use those maps and basically show in a sequence, mm-hmm. in a rapid sequence, how this distribution has changed of those swans and how this road has had an impact on these swan grazing fields, even though apparently it was not going not to going have to. an mm. impact, but these things have an impact. Mm. Sometimes there's even unforeseen consequences, like a lady who lives nearby, she sent me a little video clip last year. A lorry had broken down on this new section. A lorry loaded to the hilt with rubber tires, car tires, and it went on flames. And that was, you know, nobody could have foreseen that, that the mm. lorry would break down on this section of the road and all the toxic fumes would be drifting over this wetland. You know, it's just mm. unforeseen consequences mm. happen so quickly. And also death by a thousand cuts that we talked about at the very beginning because you knew that area in the 80s and then as you were explaining the area to us, that straight length of road was in 1993, so already that's built, and then the tomb bypass, and so this incremental, incremental, and it's almost like this four miles of the A6 is the last straw, if you like, because you see then that even that's not the end, that there's unforeseen consequences, that these big roundabouts and bridges are there ready for more roads to be developed. At the moment, they're just little farm tracks, so... It is kind of a breaking point. It's like enough. It's already desecrated, I mean, to use Heaney's term. I couldn't believe when we went there just how, how banal any road is, any flyover is, any underpass. These are just architecture from any place in the world. It's not in any way special. I just realised I've got to go in three minutes. Three minutes? <laughs> okay, can we... You can, can continue we... on. Within this sort of Kafkaesque experience, where's hope? Where's the star that's still in the sky? And what does it feel like to come at the other end of what ostensibly is an illegal thing? And, and how, you know, didn't lose your mind completely. Did you catch that? Because he actually said that quite well. For a change. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like the term, where's the star in the sky? I don't really like that. <laughs> okay. So, Colin's left us now. (laughs) Uh, So, in all of this, and it is Kafkaesque, I was looking through the judicial review, and, I mean, it's really hard work to get your head around it all. But it's also dragged on for years. How did you stay sane? 
I love nature. I think that helps to keep me sane. I mean, just this morning I watched a starling take possession of a, a little gap between two houses, our house and our neighbor's house, and he was standing up on the roof. And like when you go to at an airport, you see the people sort of waving the oh, airplane right. when they come to land. And this starling goes like this with its wings <laughs> and he's saying, hello, hello, little lady up there, you know, come and I've got the perfect place. And then they go down together and then they come up again and they chatter and are so happy. So, yeah, I think being in nature does help me. I do see that they can't go and defend themselves. Mm. Things just happen to to these animals and plants. And I think having a partner who has the same passion definitely helps. And there we watched a kingfisher at a nest, yeah? It was flying round and round the river because it's the river, the lower band there. And it was lit by the sun. It was just, it was really, really wonderful. Often the kingfisher is flying away from you, but this one was going to the bank and then flying back around the big loop about 10 times. Always lit by the sun, sometimes banking to see the orange underside. And then we started counting hooper swans. There was a flock of 55, a new ferry, and then we could see distantly another flock. So we just tried different vantage points and eventually could make out 250 hooper swans. And, and then they all lifted and flew across oh, from wow. a field. It was really wonderful and flew across the river or the top end of the lake and, and then settled on the water on this side. And it was, if you were a cameraman and you were there, wow. you, the sight and the sound yeah. and hooper swans on water, so much more pleasing on the eye than grazing in a field. Mm -hmm. They're so elegant and they're loafing and they're resting and you just feel as though they've had enough to eat and they're just chilling out. I think the stone has been thrown into the water and their ripples and there's many more people who are also realizing hold on we've always delegated this to other agencies for example and we're realizing this is thin ice we are being lulled into a false sense of safety and we can see it with our own eyes and you do meet other people and you have that regenerative culture which is something i've learned as well i'm very supportive of extinction rebellion they practice that well-being and regenerative culture because you can easily burn out you can easily become so despondent that you know it can also have a big impact on your family life There's many, many ways where you just have to take yourself back a little bit and ground yourself. I've started Chimi lessons, which is mm. a gentle form of Chimi. And you ground yourself and you root yourself and then you rise again. Mm. Yeah, James Orr speaks very well about those kinds of things as well, that we need to look after ourselves, we need to look after each other, that you step back when you need to. I like regenerative, that's a really good word and he also talked about a sense of humor I like extinction rebellion for their imagination and looking back at the campaigns that you were involved in as well your wetlands day and dressing up and getting children involved and so a sense of carnival and fun in the light of everything that's happening and still being able to get solace from nature I find a real It's a sweetness about it because for every starling that you look at and see, I feel how vulnerable they are. Every tree I walk past now, I feel how vulnerable it is because Belfast City Council actually can just come and 
chop it down. So that ability to, even in the midst of a kind of a grief, an ongoing one over a decade or more, or more, it's very admirable. It's also about just being in the moment, mm. I suppose. And while this has been a huge challenge, a judicial review, and it's not over yet, mm. this particular wetland does deserve justice and it hasn't had justice. But you just go along in life. And when I was younger, I just thought digging a pond was enough. But I realize now, no, no, the world's on fire. We need to do a lot more than that. And just engage with what comes your way. When I first lived in near Finnegy in Belfast, there was a little pond that was going to be filled in and I thought, no, that's not good because, you know, this is where the resident pair of swans is. That's where people can go and put a fishing rod in. Willis's Lake, it was called. And that was the first sort of group I thought, well, nobody else does it. I better do something together with Chris. And we formed Friends of Willis's Lake. Mm. And we have done so many little initiatives like that. And with everyone, you learn new things. Like, for example, that you can asked government agencies under freedom of information, also it's called an environmental information request, that you can ask for facts. Because I do like to be evidence-based. Friends have described me as cool, calm and collected. Mm. And maybe that's how I go through these challenges in life. No point in losing your head over it. Yes, of course, sometimes you feel despondent or sad or you feel I could have done that better. But yeah, just keep going. The fact that the road is built, the fact that you watched it get built, and even when we went back to that area and it's a scarred landscape, some people might think, oh, it's over. But I hear from you that it really isn't over, that you're still fighting for justice for what remains of those wetlands or even for those wetlands. They have a road through them now, but still they are there. And I really respect that sense of resilience, even in the face of what others might see as defeat. But to to continue fighting for justice for that place is remarkable. Well, it's also fighting almost actually for democracy. It's fighting for accountability. Mm. If a minister makes a decision, it is a decision. It cannot suddenly become a phantom in court. Where do we stand in a democracy when the law appears to look away mm. a blindness a blind spot i think that blind spot needs to be challenged we can't afford to have that blind spot anymore mm. and if there are good laws like the nature laws are good laws but if they're consistently circumvented and if there's a practice that that is acceptable then that is just not okay with me and yeah we hear a lot of examples of rewilding for example there's a lot of positive management that can happen at Lochbeg. And so when I talk about justice, yes, possibly, you know, if there's money for big motorways, why can't there be money as well for helping nature to recover to a, a point of resilience? Mm -hmm. Nature is always dynamic. I know that. Mm -hmm. And and it, it, it just needs to be given space and time. And that's what gives me hope as well. 
when Colin asked earlier about what's your guiding star, it, it is that hope that nature actually does a lot of things by itself and knows how to look after it. I was in Germany recently to visit my mum and I was moved to tears. We went to a, an exhibition where somebody had photographed extinct animals. Wow. The, the museum specimens as you have them of the, for example, the passenger pigeon. And there were so many little kangaroos in Australia. I didn't know that. Some of them were only the size of a hair. And the way they were photographed, they had just a dark background and they looked at you. Mm. And I am, that is something that does overwhelm me. Extinction. Extinction does seem very unfair to nature when we actually extinguish a line of animals that has every right to exist. Mm. Mm. And I have seen extinction in Northern Ireland. When I came here, there were corncrakes calling at Newton Abbey. There were corncrakes in the bog meadows. When I came to Fermanagh, there were so many corncrakes. I walked out at night and I know the farmers would throw sort of slippers at them at night to make them shut up. They have this rasping call through the night. They love calling in the night. And the corncrake is extinct in Northern Ireland. There are efforts to bring it back to Rathlin Island and so on. And Oxford Island did a lot of efforts. But extinction is forever as they say. And so that, that is frightening, particularly when you know about um, birds uh, and you understand their ecology. And I come from a science background. I don't have a PhD, but I, I do, I think, connect with the ecology of an animal by watching it. And I know how vulnerable they are. Mm. Just like we humans are pretty vulnerable. It's just an illusion in the mind, really, to mm. <laughs> have a sense of safety. It's not too late to make a difference. Mm. And I, I think anybody who cares deeply about something does well to think about embracing taking a legal challenge. Because the law is an interesting creature. It also changes. One example I could give which I learned from Polly Hughes, who was a very passionate campaigner, and she talked about planetary rights. Wow. And she said, well, it wasn't that long ago that rape in marriage was perfectly legal. We wouldn't accept that now. So the law does change. I agree. And lots of things change in the world that you could never imagined that they would change. I always think of the Berlin Wall when I saw it, thought it was there forever, apartheid in South Africa thought it was the way of the world. Things do change. And sometimes they change so abruptly that you can never imagine how it was before. So perhaps that's also what we were kind of envisaging, a world where one could not imagine that a road would be built through a wetlands 